Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Thank you, James. Thank you to our students for that time of worship this morning. Proud of you guys. Well, today I want to tell you the story of two great mountains. In fact, if we could somehow transform the Bible that we hold in our hands this morning into a landscape stretching out before us, towering over that landscape would be these two great mountains. One could say these two mountains represent the starting point and the finish line of our journey with Christ. In other words, all of us who are followers of Jesus begin our spiritual pilgrimage at one of these mountains and end our pilgrimage at the other. Additionally, one important thing to understand about these mountains is that they could not be more different from one another. The mountain that we start our journey at is foreboding. The one we end at is welcoming. The mountain that we start at is frightening. The one that we end at is comforting. The mountain we start at is dark and stormy. The one we end at is full of light and peace. And yet both mountains were created by the same God who has a distinct purpose for each. In today's text, the author of Hebrews describes each of these mountains in detail, and he contrasts them one against the other. His purpose in doing this is to remind the Hebrews, and by extension, to remind us which of these spiritual mountains they are leaving behind and which they are heading toward. If you remember the passage from last week, the Hebrews are weary runners in the Christian race. Their hands are dangling at their waist, their knees are feeble, they're discouraged, they're exhausted, they're about to give up. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 encourages them to keep running, to keep looking to Jesus, to keep believing that better things are ahead for them as children of God. And in today's passage, the author portrays those better things as a wonderful and beautiful mountain to which we, the children of God, are journeying together. The title of today's sermon is A Tale of Two Mountains. So let's begin reading, and we'll learn more about these two mountains and identify what exactly they are and the significance they play in our walk with Christ. We read about the first mountain in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Here's what it says. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. All right, in these verses, we read about what we're going to call mountain number one. And the first thing I'd like to do is go through these verses we just read and list out some of the things that describe this mountain. First, it says that this is a mountain. You guys can just follow along with me here in these verses. First, it says that it is a mountain that may be touched. Now, note it does not say it 
should be touched. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But all this particular phrase means is that it was a literal earthly mountain. It was not allegorical. Second, it is a mountain that burned with fire. Third, it was a mountain that was black and dark. Fourth, it is a mountain that was tempest or stormy. Fifth, it is a mountain in which a trumpet was heard accompanied by, excuse me, accompanied by unbearable words. In fact, those who heard the words, it says, begged that they would stop because they could not endure what the words commanded. Sixth, it is a mountain that brought forth death. If any living creature touched it, it was to be stoned or shot with an arrow. While it was a literal mountain that could be touched, it was not to be touched by anyone or anything. It was strictly off limits. Seventh, it is a mountain that was terrifying, so much so that it says even God's servant Moses was afraid and trembling. Now, as we consider these descriptions that we've listed out, the obvious questions that arise are, number one, what actual mountain is this talking about? Are any of you confused at this point? Like, what is going on here? What is this mountain? And two, why is this mountain so frightening? Well, let's address each one of those questions. First, What actual mountain is this passage talking about? Well, when you add up all of the details, particularly the reference to Moses in verse 21, it becomes clear that this passage describes Mount Sinai from the Old Testament, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. I want you to listen to some excerpts from Exodus chapters 19 and 20 describing the scene when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and see if there are any similarities to the passage that we just read in Hebrews 12. First, from Exodus 19, speaking of Mount Sinai, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. From Exodus 20, it says, There were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Also from Exodus 20, it says, Now all the people witness the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off, and they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but please let not God speak with us lest we die. So when you compare Hebrews 12 to those passages from the book of Exodus, I think it's pretty obvious they're talking about the same thing. Would you all agree with that? They're talking about the same place. They're talking about the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that place called Mount Sinai. But that still leaves us with the question of, why is this mountain so frightening? After all, the Ten Commandments are a good thing, right? The Ten Commandments summarize God's law. They're guidelines for how to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. So why isn't their introduction to mankind a more joyous occasion? We might expect the giving of the Ten Commandments to be accompanied by sunshine and a rainbow and the playing of a harp. Here it is, the law of God. Why all the scariness? Why the thunder and lightning and smoke? Why the darkness? Why are the people so frightened to speak to God? Why must people and animals die 
if they even so much as touched the mountain where God appeared? Well, here's the answer to all of those questions. At Mount Sinai, we come face to face with the holiness of God. At Mount Sinai, we learn that our God is a God who not only is holy himself, but demands holiness from his people. You know, when we talk about the Ten Commandments today, I think it's often with a measure of fondness and sentimentalism. Perhaps that's because we remember learning the Ten Commandments when we were a little child in Sunday school. We, we frame the Ten Commandments and hang them on the wall of our house. We put them on yard signs and bookmarks and trinkets. And our heart in doing this is good. We, we long for a world that is governed by God's moral law. And we recognize that the world would be a better place if people did live by those Ten Commandments. But here's what we have to understand as well. None of us live perfectly by the Ten Commandments. And when we look at the Ten Commandments in its proper perspective, really, they're like a mirror reflecting back to us and showing us what vile sinners we actually are. Jesus points this out very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, Jesus said, You've heard it said, You shall not murder. But if you harbor anger toward your brother, you're guilty of murdering him in your heart. Likewise, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after a person, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. You see, using Jesus' standard, there's not a single one of the Ten Commandments that each of us haven't broken at one point or another in our life. We're all sinners. We have all rebelled against God's rule. We all fall woefully short of God's holiness. In our natural state, it is not an exaggeration to say we are sinful wretches worthy of death. The book of Romans expounds on this, saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also saying the wages of sin is death. This is why Mount Sinai is so terrifying. This is why Mount Sinai is depicted as a place of darkness and death. Because on Mount Sinai, God's holiness is revealed, and we become aware that our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to him. Sinai makes clear to us there is no possible way that we can ever meet God's standard of holiness in our own strength. Mount Sinai brings us to the same point that the prophet Isaiah once found himself in the presence of God saying, woe is me for I am undone. This is why verse 19 says the people at Mount Sinai begged that God's word should not be spoken to them. Why? It says they could not endure what was commanded. It was too much. In God's holy presence, they were overcome with the realization of what great sinners they were, how inadequate they were, how powerless they were to follow God's law in their own strength, and how deserving that they were of God's wrath. You see, God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is good in that it reveals to us God's holiness and his character and his expectations. But in another sense, the law is absolutely crushing 
and that there's no possible way any person can live up to the law with all of its demands. This truth is powerfully depicted in one of my favorite books, the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. The main character, Christian, is told, remember, Christian's always carrying that burden everywhere he goes. That burden is his sin, right? And he's told he can ease that burden if he just climbs this really high hill and goes to visit this guy named Mr. Legality, Mr. Legal. But as Christian approaches the bottom of that hill, the hill actually hangs over him to the point that he's afraid it's going to fall on his head, or it's rather going to fall on his head. And all of a sudden, his burden doesn't feel lighter. It feels heavier than ever before. And at the top of that hill, it says there are flashes of fire that make Christian afraid. And that hill, of course, is a picture of Mount Sinai. And the point is, we will never obtain peace We will never lose our burden by trying to scale Mount Sinai. In other words, we'll never lose our burden by striving to follow the Ten Commandments to the best of our ability or by being a quote-unquote good person. Mount Sinai is an impossible mountain for us to climb in our own power. It just can't be done. Rather, the law looms over us and reminds us that we are sinners who fall short of the glory of a holy God. We cannot possibly save ourselves. So what then? Does that mean that this dark and terrifying mountain described in verses 18 through 21 serves no purpose? Quite the contrary. After all, God's presence is there, so it must have some purpose, it must have some value. Here's the value of Mount Sinai. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said this mountain is where we start the Christian journey. Because you see, in order to be saved, you have to first understand that you are lost, that you need saving. You have to understand that God is holy and you are not. You have to understand that God cannot and will not abide the presence of sin. Thus, your present status is separation from him. And unless you come to God some other way than through trying to conquer Mount Sinai, some other way than through your own best efforts to obey the Ten Commandments, to be a good person, you are and will be hopelessly and eternally lost. Like the Israelites, we are completely unable to ascend God's holy mountain. We are completely undeserving to be in his presence. And if we try in our own strength, we will only end up dead. This is the lesson learned at Sinai. But fortunately for us, Mount Sinai is only the beginning of the journey and not the end. There is a second mountain. So let's keep reading. Speaking to Christians, the author writes in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What this passage tells us is that for the follower of Jesus, a better mountain awaits. The name of this mountain is Mount Zion. 
Historically, Zion was the name of the hill and the ancient city of Jerusalem on which the temple of God rested. In this passage, verse 22 calls Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, Mount Zion is used here as a descriptor for the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is an interesting thing and that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. On one hand, the kingdom of God already exists wherever Jesus is king. For instance, the kingdom of God exists right here, right now, this very morning. When Christians gather to worship Jesus as king, the kingdom is present. Even this very morning, we enjoy the blessings and the fellowship of the kingdom of God, and we revel together in the presence of our king. The local church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. This is what the author means in verse 22 when he tells the Hebrews, you have come to the mountain. In one sense, they've already experienced the mountain. In another sense, the not yet sense of the kingdom, we won't fully experience Mount Zion. We won't fully experience the kingdom of God until Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. On that day, we will finally know the full unbridled joy of Mount Zion as we enjoy a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. No longer a future promise, but a present reality. Now, I want us to take just a moment, as we did with Mount Sinai, and look at how this passage describes Mount Zion. Because as I said a while ago, the two mountains are drastically different. First, whereas Sinai was an earthly location, Mount Zion is a spiritual city, the city of the living God. Second, in verse 22, it says, Mount Zion is the dwelling place of angels. Third, verse 23 says, Mount Zion is home to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Who is the firstborn over all creation? According to Colossians 1, it's Jesus Christ. Did you know that, yes, this body of believers right here is known in the community as the Selmore Baptist Church, but really our primary identity is that we are the church of the firstborn. We are Jesus's church. We are his bride. Furthermore, verse 23 says that we, the church, I love this, it says that we are registered in heaven. If you are a child of the king, your name is registered in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that cool? Fourth, echoing verse 22, Mount Zion is where we find God, the great judge. Fifth, verse 23 says, Mount Zion is home to just men made perfect. Many commentators believe this is a reference specifically to the heroes of the Old Testament that we've talked about in the previous chapter, distinct from the New Testament church mentioned earlier in the verse. Six, verse 24 tells us that Jesus is at Mount Zion. That's the best of all, right? And seventh, verse 24 mentions the blood of sprinkling. This is an interesting verse. Blood of sprinkling is the key to Mount Zion. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we can enter Zion. Verse 24 says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. 
Whereas the blood of Abel, if you go way back to Genesis chapter 4, cried out to God. Do you remember that? The blood of Abel spoke. It cried out to God, presumably for vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks something better. It speaks of mercy and it speaks of forgiveness over those who are covered by it. When we take all of these things into consideration, the bottom line is that Mount Zion is a beautiful and wonderful mountain. And here's the great part. If you belong to Jesus, you're going there. You're going to Zion. In fact, all the people of God, we're all going there together. We are pilgrims this morning on a journey to the mountain of God. Isn't that exciting? Isaac Watts captured this excitement wonderfully when he penned these words in 1707. Trying to decide if I'm going to sing it or say it. (laughs) Come ye that love the Lord and let your joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord. And thus surround the throne and thus surround the throne. Sing it with me. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Isn't that sweet? As we said at the beginning, today's passage is a tale of two mountains. Mount Sinai depicts God's holiness, His justness. Mount Zion demonstrates God's grace and God's mercy. These are the two mountains that tower over Scripture. These are the two mountains that define our Christian journey. And I think it's important to reiterate that both of these mountains belong to God. Not two different gods. It's the same God revealing himself to us in two different ways. While these two mountains are vastly different, They both serve his divine purpose. If Mount Sinai did not exist, if we never received God's law, we would never understand how desperately we need a Savior. On the other hand, if Mount Zion did not exist, if there was no promise of heaven, we would be people completely without hope. Indeed, God is found on both these mountains. As Christians, we start at Sinai but we end at Zion. Here's the key. The only way to get from Sinai to Zion, the bridge that connects the two mountains, is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus, Sinai and Zion are brought together. On one hand, we see the perfect justice of God at the cross, pouring out His wrath upon His own Son as the payment for our sin for our breaking of God's law. And that way, Mount Sinai is very present at the cross. But on the other hand, we see the perfect grace of God at the cross, sending Jesus to be our propitiation, our substitute, to die in our place so that we don't have to, so that we can live with him forever. That's Zion. Can you see it? Can you see them both there on Calvary? Only the cross of Jesus can bridge those two mountains to accomplish our salvation. And so with that being true, let me ask you a couple questions this morning. Number one, have you been to Mount Sinai? 
do you understand that you are a sinner, a violator of God's law, worthy of death, in need of a Savior? Have you repented of your sin and called on the name of Jesus to save you? And second, are you on your way to Mount Zion through faith in Jesus Christ? You can't stay at Sinai. Sinai can't save you. You must put your faith in Jesus and start walking towards Zion. Are you absolutely sure that's what you're doing? If you're not positive, don't leave here today without getting that nailed down. Don't leave here today without knowing that you have turned from your sin, that you have put your faith in Jesus, and that Mount Zion, the kingdom of God, awaits you. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of response. And I just say this, if you're here today, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you've never truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, when we sing here in just a moment, I'm going to be standing here on the floor, and I'd just like you to walk to me and shake my hand and say, Josh, I want to be a Christian. I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to turn from my sin and follow him and make him my Lord and my Savior. You don't really have to say all of that. Just say, Josh, I want to follow Jesus. I'd be more than happy. I'd be overjoyed to talk with you and pray with you and lead you in a prayer of commitment of your life this very day. If you're here today and you have any business that you need to do with the Lord, whether that be following him in baptism, uniting with this church and membership, or if you'd just like to come and pray this morning, that's what this time is for as well. James is going to come. Our students are going to come back to the platform, and they're going to lead us in our closing song. I'll be standing here at the front. Let's stand at this time. And if you need to come and you have any decision that you need to make for Jesus, we want you to do that right now.